And today we're going to concentrate on two more in verses 8 and 9. In his 2010 memoir, A Journey in My Political Life, Prime Minister of Britain, Tony Blair, shares the following story. A friend of mine whose parents were immigrants, Jews from Europe who came to America in search of safety, told me this story. His parents lived and worked in New York. They were not well off. His father died when he was young. His mother lived on, and in time, my friend succeeded and became very wealthy. He often used his, to give his mother the opportunity to travel outside of America and pay for all her expenses, but she wanted to stay home. When eventually she died, they went back to recover the safety deposit box where she kept her jewelry. Inside, they found another smaller box. There was no key, so they had to drill it open. They wondered what precious jewel must be inside. They lifted the lid, and there was more wrapping. And they unwrapped, and they finally got to an envelope. Intrigued, they opened the envelope. And in the envelope were her U.S. citizenship papers. Nothing more. That was the jewel more precious than any possession she had. That was what she treasured most, her U.S. citizenship. Is citizenship in God's kingdom that important to you? We don't receive slips of paper or membership cards when we enter. But is being part of God's kingdom the pearl of great price for you. In Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of God, or as Matthew writes about it, the kingdom of heaven, he wants to be sensitive to the Jewish audience he is writing to. That's one of the central themes of his book. And here in the Beatitudes, he's describing what people who dwell in that kingdom look like. So look with me. At chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Father God, I pray that I will recede and you will come forth and preach to your people, talk to your people, sanctify your people through your word that you ordained to be preached before time began. In Jesus' name, amen. The Beatitudes are sometimes called beautiful attitudes because they describe the inner character of people who dwell in God's kingdom. And so far we've seen the inner character of God's citizens are that they are weak and needy. That's the first three Beatitudes. People who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who hate their sins. Blessed are those who mourn. And people who are willing, actually willing to look weak and needy in this life. Blessed are the meek. And last week we saw that kingdom citizens are people who are desperate to please their heavenly father, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they're also people whose hearts have been changed and that they are merciful because of the great mercy that they've been shown. Blessed are the merciful. And now we come to the sixth description of kingdom citizens. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, kingdom citizens aim for uniformity. Kingdom citizens aim for uniformity. What do I mean by that? Their, their aim People who dwell in God's kingdom, they want their insides to match their outsides and their outside to match their inside. There are people who who's, they want their heart to match their behavior. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Blessed are those who are pure not only on the surface, but in the center of their being and at the source of every activity. That's what's going on here. That's what Jesus is trying to describe who these people who live in his kingdom are like. The word pure here means singleness or, or without folds, meaning nothing is hidden or without hypocrisy. In other words, no duality. Kingdom citizens aim for no duality. No private Blake and public Blake. No Sunday morning Blake and rest of the week Blake. We aim for singleness. We aim for purity inside and out. Because as you know and I know, duality in Scripture is deadly, isn't it? That's how it's described in Scripture. Listen to just a few. In 1 John 4.20 God's word says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother, is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. Or how about Matthew 6, and just the next chapter over from where we are. Jesus is going to say, no one can serve two masters. Either you love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, he's going to go on to say. Or how about 1 John again in chapter 2, verse 15? John says, don't love this evil world or the things in it. If you love the world, 
You do not have the love of the Father inside you. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Duality is deadly. The Bible again and again says, woe to the person who has a divided heart, right? A little later on again in Matthew, we're going to see Jesus actually using that word, right? Woe to you to describe the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he calls them whitewashed tombs, right? Who are look beautiful on the outside, but inside, he says, are full of dead bones and bodies. He accuses them in that same chapter of wiping the outside of the cup while leaving the inside dirty. In other words, the Pharisees were consumed with the outside, how they looked outside. They were consumed with that, yet virtually ignored their heart, ignored their inside. And for that, they were condemned by Jesus himself. But not so with kingdom dwellers, not so with true believers. And so Jesus here says the kingdom dwellers aim for uniformity. They aim for that. That is something that they, that they are trying to work at, becoming the same inside and out. They want their outside to reflect their inside. And they want what comes from the inside to be beautiful and wonderful and clean and pure. But let's face it. The problem with all this is that we are all recovering Pharisees, right? We're all recovering Pharisees. We have huge blind spots in our lives and hearts, don't we? We struggle with this duality. We smile at those we dislike, don't we? We laugh in order to flatter. We pretend to get along in order to gain favor. We give up our time, but we inwardly resent it, don't we? We polish our external morality, but yet inside we're disobedient. I mean, if you just look down the page in your Bible, you're going to see that's what Jesus is going to tackle next. The six dualities of lust and anger and divorce and oaths and retaliation and love. We're dual in all those things. Because we're all tempted to be more concerned with how we look on the outside than who we really are on the inside. That's what we struggle with. But, says Jesus here, the mark of a kingdom dweller is that they really work at that duality. They aim for uniformity. They they know that they have this duality going on. And they work at purity, inside as well as out. So what does this work look like in a life? How do we aim for this uniformity? How does our inside become more like our outside? Or, or maybe better yet, maybe a better way to put it for us is how does, how does our inside become more like who we portray on the outside, right? And I'd like to suggest three ways. Three ways we aim for uniformity. First of all, we have to learn in the moment to preach the gospel to yourself. 
You have to learn in the moment to preach the gospel to yourself. Jeff Bridges, in his book, The Disciplines of Grace, and I commend this book to you, The Disciplines of Grace, says this, To preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith. It means that you appropriate, again by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, his atonement, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed at you. Preaching the gospel to yourself. So when you find yourself judging a brother and sister, you realize that you were once ultimately judged by God and found wanting. Yet, Jesus came and took God's wrath for you. Or when you find yourself despising another person or angry at another person, realize that you were once God's enemy. You were once God's enemy. Yet Jesus came and and became despised and rejected for you on the cross and died for you. Or when you find yourself living a hypocrisy in some area of your life, you realize that Jesus, you preach the gospel to yourself, and, and you realize that Jesus was the only person that ever lived that was pure at heart, that had no duality, no guile. Yet God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? The second way we aim for uniformity is simple. Join a local church. You want to be pure on the inside and outside. You want to start killing off this duality. Join a local church. You were never meant to go it alone. Never meant. God's plan for each and every believer was that they become a committed member of a local church. Let me say that again. God's plan for each and every believer was that they, is that they become a committed member to a local church. And one of the church's main purposes, you know what it is? It's to help kingdom dwellers aim at uniformity. It's, it's to help people in God's kingdom become more pure at heart. You see, when you commit yourself to a community of faith where people know you intimately and you allow people to know you intimately, You cannot live a dual life for long. That becomes very apparent. If you live your life out loud among a community of dedicated, committed believers, where one-on-one, life-on-life discipleship is a norm, where hard heart questions are asked of you, where transparency and honesty are part of warp and woof of of the Christian life, where you are known with a capital K, that is a recipe for change. That is a recipe for growth. That is a recipe for purity. The third way we aim for uniformity is that we have to depend on the Holy Spirit. 
We have to look to Him for the change. See, we can't change ourselves. We think we can. We think we can live this sacerdotal life where if I, if I obey enough on the outside, it'll work its way on the inside. That is not how the gospel works. The gospel works from the inside out. Isn't that what Jesus said? You know, out of the heart come what? All kinds of evil things. So we're to aim at the heart. Jack Miller, in his book, The Heart of a Servant Leader, wrote, Soren Kierkegaard once said that purity of heart is to will one thing. He goes on to say, his statement is not true at all if that one thing is our own will. Then we end up like little Hitlers and Jeffrey Dahmers. But when, by the Spirit's aid, he says, but when, by the Spirit's aid, we reject our own will and do his, we grow in purity of heart. Again, I tell you, brothers and sisters, you cannot change yourself. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can change your heart. He's the only one that can change your desires. He's the only one that can purify that which is inside. We're good at the outside stuff. That's our expertise. You know what the Holy Spirit's expertise is? The inside stuff. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, and we read it earlier today, and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of our Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit the Spirit of Christ that changes us. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes us pure in heart. And the promise for those whose aim is uniformity, the promise who's one who's, who's trying to do this, is that they will see God. Isn't that beautiful? Why do you think Jesus put it that way? The pure will see God. Well, because I think I think it's because they have a singular focus. People in God's kingdom are singularly focused on this one activity in their life. There's a famous experiment that was conducted in 1999 by Christopher Chambris and Daniel Simmons called the Invisible Gorilla. I'm going to ruin it for you here because it was conducted to test what is called selective attention. In the experiment, there are six people, three of whom are wearing white shirts and three of whom are wearing black shirts, and each team has a basketball. And the challenge you are given as you're watching this is to count how many times the people in white shirts are passing this basketball back and forth to other people in the white shirts. And at the same time, the people are moving around in and among each other, passing the basketball, and you're to count how many times the white shirts pass the basketball back and forth to each other. At the end, if you'd counted 15, you were right. However, what you're not told is that while you're focusing on those white shirts passing the basketball back and forth, a person dressed up as a gorilla walks right through the middle of this group. 
And he even stops and beats his chest and looks right at the camera and then continues on. And what's staggering about this experiment is that over 50% of the people who watch it never, ever see the gorilla. And they're surprised when they watch it again and are told about this. Of course, then they see the gorilla. The experiment is meant to show that some people are so singular in focus that they do not see another obvious object. I'd like to suggest to you today that kingdom dwellers should never see the gorilla. In other words, the world offers us so much, doesn't it? The world says, look at everything. The world beckons us, experience everything. It asks us to take everything in. It asks us to multitask. But kingdom dwellers keep their eye on the ball. Kingdom dwellers keep their eye on Christ. Their aim is singular, pure at heart. Helen Keller once was asked, isn't it terrible to be blind? You know what her reply was? Better to be blind and see with your heart than have two eyes and see nothing. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Kingdom citizens work at reconciliation. Kingdom dwellers work at reconciliation. We work at hard at making peace. As Ken Sand puts it in his book, Peacemaker, peacemakers are people who breathe grace. Isn't that wonderful? Many interpret peacemaking as a soft-spokenness or timidity. That Christians are to be people who, who don't make waves, are pleasant and tolerant people, easygoing, lenient, look at maintaining the peace. I think Jesus here doesn't mean that at all. I think Scott McKnight, as he writes in his commentary, peacemaking is not being nice, nor is it tolerance. Rather, it is an active entrance into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of creating reconciliation and peace. I think he's right on. I think that's exactly what Jesus is calling his kingdom dwellers to do. Peacemakers are to enter in between warring parties and and we're called to do that on two fronts we're called to do that on two fronts the first front is we are called to make peace between man and man we're called to make peace between man and man kingdom dwellers are people who actively and courageously seek peace between brothers and sisters now there's a difference between peacemaker and peacekeeper A peacekeeper is interested in compromise, an absence of conflict and strife, of maintenance. But a peacemaker is interested in justice. A peacemaker is interested in what is right. A peacemaker is interested in truth. As R.C. Sproul says here, the peacemakers that Jesus has in view in Matthew 
are those who bring true peace to bear without compromising integrity, truth, and justice. I think that's absolutely right. And peacemaking, as we're called to do it, peacemaking, entering into and between two warring parties, takes courage and sacrifice. To be a peacemaker takes courage and sacrifice. It takes courage to stand between two people who are at odds with each other. And it demands sacrifice. Again, Ken Sand here in his book, Peacemakers are the ones who will make personal sacrifices to work it out. Peacemakers make sacrifices. What are some of those sacrifices? What, is, what sacrifices do you, do you actually give to be a peacemaker? Well, I think you can get hurt being a peacemaker, don't you? I think you can be hurt. Sometimes when you stand between two warring parties, you become the object of wrath, right? Sometimes, like an exploding grenade, you catch shrapnel when you enter in. So it takes courage to, to, to say, no, I, I'm going to be a peacemaker here. Also, peacemaking forks, forces us to speak the truth, doesn't it? Peacemakers... Speak the truth. Ephesians 4.15 demands that we speak the truth in a loving way, right? Speaking truth in love, Paul writes to the Ephesians. We're called to, to be people who tell the truth at the right time and in the right measure, right? That's being wise in how much your truth you're telling. You'll tell people, a person, the whole truth all at once. It might be harsh and hurtful. But we speak the truth in love, in the right time, in the right measure. And that sometimes can be uncomfortable. When God calls us to speak into somebody's life, to challenge them, to, you know, as we're living in this community of faith and, and you see a duality in a brother or sister, to actually tell them, you know, I think I see this in you. That takes courage. We're called to be that kind of peacemaker. Lastly, peacemaking takes courage because it forces you to see your own inadequacy, doesn't it? When you, when you are in between two warring parties, how inadequate you, you feel so many times. I have to tell you, as a pastor, much of my prayer life is devoted to desperate prayers of help. Literally desperate prayers of help. That, that, that's what constitutes a good percentage of my prayer life. Because I know I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not wise enough. I don't have enough experience to actually do any good in this situation. But I remember I, I serve the one who does have all that. And that's why I pray. Lord, help me. But there's a second way we're peacemakers too. We're to be peacemakers between man and man, but we're also to be peacemakers between God and man. We are to participate in making peace between man and God. In other words, and to cut to the chase, kingdom dwellers evangelize. Kingdom dwellers share their faith. Kingdom dwellers share the hope that they have within them. Because they know that there is no peace between God and man. That's the, 
the hard knowledge that Scripture gives us, isn't it? The Scripture is, is abundantly clear on this fact. In our natural condition, we are no friends of God. That Now, that's the assumption of the vast majority of the people that live on the earth, that they and God are okay. But the Bible is clear. No, we're not okay. In Colossians, he describes natural man as alienated and hostile in mind toward him. In Isaiah 53 and in 1 Peter 2, it describes us as stray sheep, not sheep that are in his pen and who know their, 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 their great shepherd, but stray sheep. And perhaps the most complete description of the relationship between God and man we find in Ephesians chapter 2, the opening verses there. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in the way you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And he concludes that paragraph by saying, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's pretty clear. Now, if you're watching this today, and you're not a Christian, you you haven't put your faith in Christ I'm delighted that you're watching, and I, and I hope you continue to watch week in and week out. And as a matter of fact, I, I pray that you will come here when this mandate to stay at home is lifted. But there is a plain, hard truth that the Bible speaks to, and that is there is no peace between you and God right now. However much I would want that to just to be naturally true, or you would want that to be just naturally true, it's not true. You and God are not friends right now. You're not at peace. But there is a way to have peace with God. And that is through Jesus Christ, the ultimate peacemaker. He made peace possible for you by doing three things. By coming in the flesh by dying on the cross, and by raising again from the dead. He made peace for you because he came in the flesh. He he lived a life, a human life. God came in the form of, of man and lived a human life and obeyed God with singular purpose. He was totally pure at heart. He was tempted in every way that we are, the Bible says, yet he did not sin in Hebrews 4.15. He was perfect. He was spotless. He was sinless. He earned heaven. He earned peace with God. He also earned the right to be the perfect sacrifice. And that's what he did on the cross. That's why he went to the cross. He willingly allowed himself to be crucified, nailed to that cross. He took the punishment for your sins, And I want you to listen carefully to how 1 Peter 2 puts it. He says, Christ suffered for you. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He bore in himself our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed, Peter says. For you were like stray sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the great overseer of your soul. He stood between you and God. That's what Jesus did on the cross. 
He took the full force of your sin's punishment in his body so that you could have peace with God. And you know what proves that it's all true? Is that he rose from the dead three days later. So the question is, do you want peace with God? That's the question. You can have it today by simply bowing your head and confessing that you're a sinner, asking for forgiveness, and inviting Jesus to be part of your life. And you will have peace with God. And when you have peace with God, you want to share it. That's what kingdom dwellers do. That's who kingdom dwellers are. They want to share that hope. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. And as his sons and daughters were called to make peace too. That's what the Great Commission tells us all over. Mark 16, 15 says, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Do you know what the good news is? You can have peace with God. And we are to be like Jesus, desperate to make peace between God and man, desperate to warn people that they are not friends with God. On March 26, 2000, Seattle's famed kingdom, the home of the Seattle Seahawks and Mariners, was destroyed. The Maryland-based Controlled Demolition Incorporated, CDI, was hired to do the job of imploding the 25,000-ton structure. What was remarkable about the event was the extreme measures that CDI undertook to ensure that no one was hurt. The engineers checked and rechecked the structure, making sure no one was inside. The authorities evacuated several blocks in the vicinity of the kingdom, not wanting anyone to be hurt. Safety measures were in place that allowed the countdown to stop for any reason. All workers were individually accounted for by radio before the countdown began. And a large public address system was set up to, to broadcast the final countdown. In short, CDI took every measure they possibly could to warn people of the impending danger. That's exactly what citizens of God do. Like the engineers who blew up the kingdom, our Heavenly Father has spared no expense at making sure everybody has the opportunity to get out. He sent his son into the world to make peace with anyone who put their trust in him. Now, as peacemakers ourselves, we should be desperate to share that truth with others. That's who we are. We should be desperate to tell people that judgment is coming, but there's a way to escape that judgment. We should be desperate to tell the world that this world is not all there is. This world is coming to an end. This world is temporary, but there's a way to live beyond this world. We should be desperate to tell people that there is no peace with God, but there's a way to have it through Jesus Christ. Fritz Kreisler, who lived from 1875 to 1962, was a world-famous violinist who earned a fortune in his concerts and compositions. 
But interestingly enough, Fritz Kreisler gave most of it away. One day he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips and he actually wasn't able to purchase it because he was so poor. Later, after he raised enough money, he returned to the seller, but it too late, the violin had been sold to a collector. So he actually tracked down the collector and offered to buy the violin. The collector said he'd be, it had become his prized possession in his collection and didn't want to sell it. Disappointed, Chrysler was about to leave when he had an idea. He asked, could I play the instrument once before it is consigned to silence? The owner handed the violin over and the great virtuoso filled the room with beautiful music. Once he had stopped playing, there was a long pause and the owner handed the violin over to Chrysler saying, I have no right to keep that to myself. It's yours. Take it into the world and let people hear it. See, kingdom dwellers realize that they have no right to keep the gospel to themselves. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and spirit. I pray that you change us. We're desperate to be changed, people. Make us uniform inside and out. Challenge us, Lord. Help us to be people who do not keep the hope that is within us silent and dormant. In Jesus' name, amen.